Last week, Cyclone football scored more points against Oklahoma State than they have against the rest of their FBS opponents this year, combined. The Cyclones also allowed as many points to be scored than they have against their FBS opponents, also combined. Consider that this was a team that South Alabama held to only seven points. Yes, OSU was angry after such an embarrassing loss, but considering that their roster has considerably less star power on offense than we're used to seeing, we should have been able to hold them to significantly less than 27 points on our own field. Welcome to the Cornfield Sports Pod. I'd like to bring in my co-host, Blake Peterson, and it's time to recap that Oklahoma State win. Yes, let's go. Um, 34-27, Cyclone victory, but comparatively... We have work to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I mean, our defense was a star. As, as I mentioned, you know, we held them to 27 points. South Alabama held them to only seven points. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what, what, what's your analysis of that right now? You know, I, I really got to say that defense, defense definitely has some work to do. Um, they, they, could, they could have done a little more work on the field, but I'm honestly surprised of the improvements that our offense that our offense definitely showed. Um, I did not expect to go to go like all the way up to 34. Uh, 30, 35 would have been nice too, but yeah, still still got a lot of work to do for for the upcoming Oklahoma game coming. Uh, yeah, we do, but part of that is our offense does have an identity now. You know, they essentially adjusted from a run heavy offense that we've been working with the last few years to attempting a quasi-air raid-style offense against Oklahoma State that appeared to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rocco Becht was slinging the pill. Dude, yeah. 27 out of 38, 340 yards, three tutties. Mm -hmm. That's a good day. That's a good day for any quarterback. Very good. Um, And Jalen Knoll finally had his breakout game, too. Eight receptions, 146 yards. He had a tutty. And Daniel Jackson, I didn't even know who this dude was (laughs) until this game. But six catches for 90 yards and two tutties. That's a great day. Very good. That's a great day for a receiver. And I, I want to see more of that from Daniel Jackson the rest of this season because if he can receive like that, he should be up high on the target list. He should be, mm-hmm. high, he, he should be, he should be very early on in Rocco's progressions. Now, one thing I noticed with the progressions, too, and the reception counts, Jaden Higgins, only one reception. Hmm. He was basically non-existent in this game. Like, where was Jaden Higgins? No. Only one reception. And our O-line allowed zero sacks. So our pass protection was solid. Mm-hmm. But five TFLs. Five TFLs. Mm-hmm. Our run blocking needs work. It does. But So what are you looking what, – what else are you noticing on the offense? What, what, what's the eye test? What, what, are, what, what else are we missing here? Well, first of all, so glad – we're opening up the playbook, like with with all these air raid quote unquote. But yeah, like definitely glad we're going on there. Well, yeah, it's it's a lot of that because you, you notice a lot of the routes that we were running, they were deeper. They were deeper slants over the middle. We hit a lot of those, but a lot of our passes, a lot of our pass attempts were beyond about that eight yard threshold. It wasn't just these one and two yard passes that we were hoping to break tackles on immediately and then turn up field, mm. because let's be real. Over the course of the last couple of years, we have struggled to do that on receptions, and that's been the case since Brock Purdy graduated. Mm. He it was a very, it's very much a timing thing on the pass, and when Brock Brock Purdy was excellent at hitting the exact timing on those passes, so that the receivers could break those tackles. And we didn't see that last year with Deckers. And in the early games this year, we didn't see that with Rocco. But Rocco has done a good job so far, at least in the Oklahoma State game, of getting the ball downfield where there's openings, where you don't necessarily have to break a tackle right off the gate, but it's there. And he knows what's working and what isn't. So I'm glad he used this game like to adjust accordingly. Yes, I was glad to see Shield Haas. Uh, make some adjustments from the offensive coordinator standpoint because I was I was getting a little bit concerned that it was starting to look a little bit Tom Manningish. Mm, same here. And we all know that Cyclone Nation did not like that last year. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to talk about the defense some too. Our pass rush, our pass rush looked great in that game. Definitely. Um, 
They they forced Alan Bowman out of the pocket on almost all of his dropbacks that, that that I can remember. He did not sit in the pocket much. Mm. And because of that lack of allowing plays to develop, he was limited to below 50% completion percentage, a lot of which were throwaways. He threw a lot of passes out of bounds, which means our, our coverage is holding up too. Mm. We did still allow 409 yards on the day, and a lot of that was passing. But some of that is also we, we got to remember who we're playing here and while their roster and their star power isn't necessarily there their coach and their the coaching style still is mike gundy plays tempo mike gundy loves to play fast mm-hmm. i mean this is the same guys that almost won national championships over 10 years ago and mm, guess who spoiled it <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't like us for that our defense, they only had one sack on the day, but that is still better than what Oklahoma State's defense got on us. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take that win there. We only garnered three TFLs. That could be better. We did have three pass deflections, so that's that's something that's promising. I'd like to see more, but, you know, who wouldn't? And then, yes, it was Mike Gundy's tempo, though, that – made that really improved Oklahoma State's stats in the box score when you start to break it down uh, onto a player-by-player basis and you start to apply the eye test it doesn't reflect as positively on Oklahoma State but at the same time when you go back and look at the box score from their South Alabama game we clearly have work to do that said I want to talk about the upcoming Oklahoma game a little bit we know they're going to be much tougher than Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. We know that. They had 425 total yards against Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. They, they don't have Baker Mayfield anymore. They don't have Kyler Murray anymore. They don't have Jalen Hurts anymore. No. They have Dylan Gabriel now. He's still kind of a weapon, just not a Heisman caliber weapon. That makes it a little bit different. But what have you been seeing so far out of their offense? In, in the games that you've seen. Because when they played Cincinnati, they got 425 total yards. That's a lot. Mm. Yep, they're definitely making their mark like as like as their last year in the Big 12. Like like they're like they're going to make their presence heard. Um, they're they're definitely going to show they're definitely showing their SEC, their future SEC opponents like next year like hey, we mean business. Is this the kind of team that you expected from a Brent Venables coached Oklahoma? They only scored 20 points. But they allowed six points on defense, and they didn't even allow Cincinnati into the red zone once. Mm. Is that is that what you're expecting from an Oklahoma de- uh, an Oklahoma defense, an Oklahoma team that's coached by Brent Venables as opposed to Bob Stoops or Lincoln Riley? Yes. All right. As we're looking at Oklahoma going into the SEC, that's an important thing to mention. This is likely the last time we play Oklahoma for a while. Mm-hmm. Do you expect any? What are you looking at from our from, you know, chips on our players' shoulders because they've got one last shot to go after Oklahoma here. Mm. What's what mentality are you seeing that from from our fan base, and what are you seeing? What do you expect from the players and the coaches? On which side? Ours. Our side. Yeah. Honestly, just give it all you got. Like before they come out. On terms of like potentially playing them again, I would I would expect like another bowl appearance. Like if we ever get to that point, preseason. That's all or no, non-conference play. That's what I meant. Like I def I definitely see possibility there. One of the other things that I was looking at was their their wide receiver, their their number one target, uh, Andrell Anthony. He's going to be difficult to cover. Mm-hmm. Like he seems like the kind of guy that we should be having TJ Tampa cover because he was dominant in their game against uh, Cincinnati, and he's been dominant over the course of the year. He's a weapon. He's going to do good stuff for that team, and he is going to be hes going to be tough to figure out. He, I mean, he's not the kind of target that we saw last year out of, like, Xavier Hutchinson. That's, I mean, that's a reference that every, every Cyclone fan, you know, that's paid attention recently is going to know. But, you know, X was – basically our only target for an entire year and so he got the focus of everything Andrell Anthony for the Sooners is not he's not a Xavier Hutchinson but he's taking enough and his team is taking enough receptions to take the pressure off of him 
which is an advantage that Xavier did not have. And I think that that makes Andrell Anthony particularly dangerous. Our edge rush needs to get to Dylan Gabriel. They got to Alan Bowman. Our edge rush got to Alan Bowman, and we need to see that replicated against Dylan Gabriel. It's going to be tougher. It's going to be tougher. We know that Oklahoma's got a better offensive line. Oklahoma's got a better pretty much everything that Oklahoma State does, aside from, you know, I don't even know. They're just Oklahoma's good, and Oklahoma State is really bad this year. And I think that it's going to be a tough game. What's your prediction on the outcome for this one? Definitely Cyclones are going to fall short, probably by a couple possessions, I'd say, because playing down at Oklahoma, that's a tough field to play in, like really tough environment. I feel like the offense on both sides are going to put some points up. So, Got a, got a final score prediction over here? Final score, I'd say, want to say 30 to 14. Okay. 30 to 14, Oklahoma. Yeah. Mine's a little bit different than that. Mine's a little bit higher. I like that our offense found an identity last week. We're not going to be putting up 34 points against Oklahoma, though, not against a Brent Venables coach team. My final score prediction, 38-24, Oklahoma. I don't think we can come out of this with a win. The only chance we have is that Oklahoma is just overlooking us because Red River is coming up. Mm -hmm. And that's another intangible that's going to apply to this game, and we'll see how it affects it. But – that is a very difficult thing to quantify when you're preparing for a game. I'm not going to call the upset on this one. 38-24 Oklahoma with the win. Um, Safe assumption. That said, next, I want to move on to Cyclone Volleyball. 11-2 and on the year. 2-0 and in conference play with two sweeps over West Virginia last week. And beginning tomorrow, we have a series against Baylor. Baylor is currently 7-5. and uh, overall, with an 0-1 conference record, that loss, I believe, was to BYU. Yes, that loss was to BYU. But don't be fooled by Baylor's relatively unimpressive numerical record. They are battle-tested. Mm-hmm. They have played – here's a list of the ranked opponents that they have played. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Rice. Yes, Rice's are actually a ranked team in some sports. <laughs> Washington State. Ohio State, and BYU. And all of their losses, except for one, have come off of that list. The only exception would be they did lose a game to Southern Methodist. I don't have an explanation for that one, but they did. Now, their success against these higher-ranked opponents, yeah, it has been scarce. Four losses against a list of six is not great. That is one thing where... They might not have that high of a ceiling if they're being this battle-tested and they're not scratching wins out of there even, you know, half the time. I mean, how else do you look at that? Like, like what are you looking at that when, when you see that they're battle-tested and they're not gaining wins out of these high-ranked opponents, Blake? Hmm. I know Baylor is a very, very capable team. I mean, we, we've seen them last year. And coming into this weekend, I'm definitely not going to be mad if if we can't come out on top. But, uh, but obviously, they are very capable. I actually don't think their rec- record shows that. They've got a lot more than, than just their record. Yeah. And then on our side of the coin there, when it comes to record, our record looks a lot better. Our conference record is, I mean, it's 2-0, and oh, but that's undefeated, which is better than Baylor can say. But our team is not anywhere near as battle-tested as Baylor is. I mean, the, the, the best opponents that we have played this year, we played great, and we lost to them in four sets. And on top of that, we've played Arizona, and we've played Iowa. And GCU. And GCU. Now, GCU's not exactly an autonomy conference team. They did play a good game against us, but it's a different standard that we're looking at here. And Creighton was the only ranked team that I'm aware of that we played. And we we did lose that in four sets. And it took us five sets to beat Iowa in Coralville. That was... That was about to end terribly. Yeah, that very well could have been... We were one set away from being swept by the Hawkeyes, which was not a pretty scene. One of the other things that I want to look at statistically, though, is that both teams here struggle with service errors. Baylor's got 97 service errors on the year. 
and we've got 111, which both of those numbers to be at, to even be close to 100, let alone over 100 at this point in the year, is pretty high. It's not great, and that's something that we need to work on. Service aces, those numbers are relatively even. A lot of the statistical comparisons between our two teams are relatively even right now, and it could be a close game. But not being battle-tested concerns me a little bit, whereas I think we can see that Baylor doesn't have that high of a ceiling, but they might still have a high floor. That we don't know. Because, like I said, their only loss outside of that list of ranked opponents that I gave was Southern Methodist. And it's too early in the season to really know too much about Southern Methodist either. Now, our defense has been sound. We've allowed only 160 hitting against us. And that's been led primarily by Brooke Stone Street. She's one of the best liberos in the country right now, doing a phenomenal job. Her receiving percentage is absolutely nuts. But that's also been against opponents that are not as strong. And that is something that could be developed. We'll see how that is affected in Big 12 play. I imagine that hitting a loud number goes up as we get deeper into the season, and especially into conference play when we're going to have some tougher opponents. We're not going to be able to avoid them by having a relatively weak non-conference schedule. Now, our service ace count is up there, which offsets our service error problem a little bit, but not as much as you know, we would like to because you have more service errors than you do aces. That's just the nature of the game. Uh, and then the other big discrepancy that I've seen in our statistic, in our season statistics is that opponents have struggled to block against us. Now, some of that likely is because of who we're playing again as well. A lot of the teams that we have don't necessarily have big dynamic medals that can have long reach and can cover large swaths of the net that's going to be a test going into big 12 play and especially against baylor it'll be really interesting when we start getting a little bit later into the season when we have to play texas because asia o'neill is going to be difficult to hit around Mm -hmm. that's one of the i mean that's just part of the nature of the game that will come later in the season but our blocking is great two and a half blocks a set that's good and opponents have only blocked 1.8 blocks a set against us. So that is something that is worth noting, something that we might be able to have an advantage over. We have a lot of depth at the middle blocker position to think that the two people who started basically every game last year at middle blocker position are not starting right now because of a freshman that came in and is just absolutely killing it. And then another one of our seniors came in, absolutely dominated during spring ball and has just shown her potential, shown how good she can do. I mean, Jordan and Pam have done great. Absolutely no slight to Lex or to Kelsey at all. They're all phenomenal players, and they all excel on the court. And I love having that depth at the middle position on our team. Now, as we move on to some of the pro sports here. I want to look at the NFL first. Vikings, they are 0-3 on the year right now. And they played the Chargers last week. Anybody that had Justin Herbert in fantasy football last week had a really great week, unless your name is Matt Menson and you <laughs> had him on the bench in favor of Patrick Mahomes. But we're not going to talk about my fantasy football points. The defense of the Minnesota Vikings just couldn't contain Justin Herbert. They had Justin, Justin Herbert had 40 completions. 40. I don't know. How, how do you get 40 completions in a game, Blake? At the NFL level. NFL, I mean, you should be going against better defenses. Unless your name is the unless you're the Miami Dolphins and you're playing the Denver Broncos, if you're the Denver Broncos, I, I don't know where I don't know where their defense was. Do they have one? They they didn't have one. They they didn't have one. Speaking from speaking from a lifelong Bronco who has been around a Broncos family, yeah, I could safely say we had no defense. 
Yeah, it's, that's kind of what I gathered, considering 70 points allowed is the most I can remember in an NFL game in my entire lifetime. I'm not aware of any particular instance of this happening. Half a decade ago. Half a decade ago? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what game or, or, what, or what game exactly. No, uh, half a century. I'm half a century ago? That makes more I, sense. I'm I was going to say like 50 off. years. I'm way off. 50 years ago, because I think... Yeah. This was like one of this was like one of the like the really old like Super Bowls, right? Didn't like the wasn't it like the Washington Redskins and somebody it was like the score was like seventy two to like three or something like that. All right, I just found this o- overall record uh, seventy three by Chicago in the NFL. The only other team to score seventy was the Rams in nineteen fifty against Baltimore. Wait, that's pre Super Bowl era. That's old. That's old. So yeah. Um, in, in other words, Denver, your defense is awful, um, and we'll see. Well, actually, d- actually, you were right. When was the last time an NFL team scored seventy? Washington Redskins had seventy-two points versus the Giants, November twenty-seven, nineteen sixty-six. That was the first year of the Super Bowl, was it not? That was that was Super Bowl one, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the old Vince Lombardi era. When he was a coach and not a trophy. But anyway, back to the recap of Vikings Chargers. The Vikings only allowed 30 rush yards, which looks great uh, until you notice that Los Angeles only ran the ball 15 times, which that's still only two yards a rush. It's not awful, but LA didn't have to run the ball. Mm. They just didn't. Not when Justin Herbert was throwing that ball all over the place and just, you know, getting his receivers to catch the ball at will. I mean, he he had his way with the Vikings defense, and the Vikings defense is going to have to improve if they want to get a win. Now, this week, they play the Panthers. It's a battle of 0-3s. Somebody's going to come off the winless list this week. Say that five times fast, winless list. But, yes, and it does appear that after three days of practicing healthy, Bryce Young will be back in the lineup for Carolina. So we'll see how this affects things. Andy Dalton will not be starting in that game. You saw Andy Dalton actually played quite well last week for the Panthers, just not well enough, which is basically the story of Kirk Cousins' life. <laughs> yeah, well, but not well enough. That de- basically defines Kirk Cousins last week too. And then let's move on to Bears-Chiefs from last week. The Bears allowed 27 points in the second quarter. You won't win a football game that way. You just won't do it. And then on top of that, they allowed 456 yards across the entire game. And it was, relatively speaking, fairly balanced. Mahomes threw for 272 yards, three tutties, no picks. And the Chiefs combined for 153 rush yards. The Chiefs dominated. Easy money. Yeah, easy money is right. But what are you looking for? How are, the, how are the Bears going to improve on that? Well, they have a chance to show against the Broncos. I mean, I feel like the Bears and Broncos are kind of on the same level. I feel like the, I feel like the Bears are a little bit higher on that. But do you, do you think that with the Broncos' defense showing just how awful it's capable of being that uh, Justin Fields will actually be able to have a good game for once? Yes. Because last week against the Chiefs, Justin Fields' QBR – was 18.4. If I see a QBR of 18.4, you know what I'm thinking of? The Iowa Hawkeyes offense. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I just compared the Chicago Bears to the Iowa Hawkeyes. <laughs> I just did that. Congratulations, Iowa. You look like an NFL team. <laughs> and that's about the only accolades they're going to get from me all year. Um, no, no, Chicago no. didn't even score until garbage time in that game. They, I mean, that game was long since won by Kansas City by the time that the Bears actually scored. We've all, you've seen the highlight reels or the, the quote-unquote highlight reels of Justin Fields on, you know, on, on Instagram, TikTok, whatever, mm-hmm. where his pass protection is fine, his receivers are open, and he will find a way to throw the worst possible pass on the field or he will have a pass wide open that he could hit and probably get a touchdown for, and he will run the ball for like three yards and then they'll punt it. 
And that's that's the story of Justin Fields at the Chicago Bears right now. <laughs> also remember that the Chicago Bears is the same team that traded up for a draft to get Mitch Trubisky before the Chiefs drafted Patrick Mahomes, who just absolutely wiped the floor with them. And Rip. welcome to being a Chicago Bear. <laughs> <laughs> the Bears now have an upcoming game against the Broncos, who demonstrated the worst defense most fans have been alive to witness. <laughs> yeah, they allowed 70 points, as we priorly mentioned, but what I didn't mention was that they also allowed 726 total yards. 726. Just revel in the awe of how bad that is for a second. I wonder if my dad who has been a Broncos fan his whole life, I wonder if he watched that game at home. I wonder I wonder how Mother felt. I hope Mother wasn't in the same room. I hope he wasn't watching the majority of the game. Those numbers those numbers are video game numbers. Yes. They're video game numbers. Against like, against a rookie team in Madden. Yeah, like you have to have your difficulty set all the way down, and then you hit those numbers. I mean, M- Miami had, what was it? 350 yards on the ground. 350 run yards. I've tried that in, like, like, I guess I don't play Madden. I play, like, the old EA college sports games, you know? Mm -hmm. The old EA NCAA football. I've tried to hit 350 yards on the ground before um, with their standard, you know, clock rules and stuff without, you know, extending the clocks and whatnot. I haven't been able to do that. I've been able to hit 70 points in a game. Not with 350 <laughs> yards on the ground. That's nuts. And then Denver, they liked shooting themselves in the foot, too, during that game. They could not stop themselves from shooting themselves in the foot. Who let Russ cook? Seven penalties. And, oh, yeah, their, their total yards for Denver in that game, 363. That's it. 363 total yards. Not pass yards, total Total. yards. And somehow they still managed to score 20 points with that. Somehow. Denver looks like they might be the worst team in the league until the Bears find a way to lose against them because that's what the Bears do. (laughs) Because the Bears. Now, moving on to back to the Kansas City Chiefs. I know we already broke down their last game against the Bears, but – We've got a little bit of previewing of their game against the Jets to do. But first, we all have to talk about it because that's what you do in today's society now. Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Because we got to get the Swifties to listen to to us somehow. I guess that's one way to get someone to listen to this podcast. But my concern, because I'm a Chiefs fan, I'll own it. I love the Chiefs. But my concern is that it's this could have an effect on the team. Like this is going to affect your team banter in the locker room and in practice. Are the Chiefs going to be focused? Cuz that was that was a question that we could have had answered last week, but the problem with getting that question answered last week is that they were playing the Bears. And you're not going to get that question answered while you're playing a cupcake team. You need to be playing actual competition. So is it going to be a distraction for the team, as I suspect it might be? Or is there the potential that it does serve as some kind of motivation? I don't know how that would work, but I'm not going to discount it. And then Travis Kelsey, his jersey sales improved by 400% in like one day. Russell Wilson watching this be like, (gasps) I haven't seen jerseys. I haven't seen this scale of a jersey sale spike since Alejandro Villanueva from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was an offensive lineman. Like, nobody knew who this dude was. And then he went out when everybody was either kneeling for the national anthem or staying in the locker room, and he went out and stood by himself, former Navy SEAL, his jersey sale spiked. Like, they were sold out on Fanatics, you know, within the snap of the fingers. They were, I mean, they were just were not there. You could not get a hold of one of his jerseys. Mm. Makes makes me wonder how like how did his jersey sales like compare to Brock Purdy's last year? Well, Travis Kelsey's jerseys had to be selling more this year because he was already, you know, a household name. I mean, this is a dude that when he retires will probably go down as the greatest tight end in history. Mm-hmm. Because sorry to all of you Rob Gronkowski fans, Rob Gronkowski had like 
one or two years where he was actually prime, and then he was still good, but he was not prime Gronk. Travis Kelsey has been prime Travis Kelsey for like seven years now. <laughs> Dude is amazing. Tony Gonzalez is still the GOAT, but um, you know what? Here's, here's my thought. When Travis Kelsey breaks up with Taylor Swift, that will officially make him the greatest tight end of all time. <laughs> and then Swifties are gonna hate are gonna hate him for buying for buying his jersey. Yep. And but now time to time to preview the game against the Jets. The Jets have not scored more than sixteen points in regulation. They haven't done it. The only time they've scored more than sixteen points was in week one when they went to overtime with the Bills. <laughs> Brees Hall. Uh yeah, that was basically all Brees Hall. Brees Hall is that team's offense because Zach Wilson can't throw the ball to anybody. Jets do not like the Zach Wilson. The only way Zach Wilson isn't hitting the ground on his pass is if the ground is what he's aiming for. <laughs> I said the same thing about Spencer Petras with Iowa last year, and I stand by it. But, yeah, Zach Wilson actually needs to command this team if he wants to beat the Chiefs, and uh, he's not doing that. Zach Wilson is not commanding a team. Mm-hmm. He's, he's just not. Look at the box score metrics from across the season. Patrick Mahomes is almost twice as good, almost twice as good in almost every metric. It's insane. And I understand that Patrick Mahomes has been an MVP player in the past. Patrick Mahomes is a legitimate star in the NFL. He's got, you know, some of the highest selling jersey sales. You go into the season and he's one of the most sought after fantasy football picks. It's like Patrick Mahomes is a valuable player. So I understand it's a high, high standard to compare Zach Wilson to but at the same time they are also playing each other this week so I feel like comparing them against each other is reasonable because you kind of have to be compared against the team that you're playing and so what's the key for Kansas City to win this game play fast because New York can't keep up (laughs) and that's the, the opposite side of the coin to that is if New York wants to have any chance at winning this game they're gonna have to slow the game down They're going to have to let Brees Hall cook, and they're going to have to dominate in time of possession so as not to let the Chiefs run away with it. But I don't think that that's going to necessarily happen because the Chiefs, after, you know, playing a game without him, that didn't go all that well, you know, because they lost the game. Well, now they have Chris Jones back, and so uh, that defensive front from the Chiefs is just, like, exponentially better when Chris Jones is playing. Their pass rush is significantly better. Zach Wilson's not going to have any success with the Kansas City Chiefs pass rush. He's just not. And the gaps are going to be filled by Kansas City's rush defense. They're not going to have all that much success. Brees will break some tackles. Brees will do what Brees does. We all saw him do it out here for three years. He was great at Iowa State. Mm. But he's going to have much more limited success against a Kansas City Chiefs defense that, that is legitimately good and can have success, sustained success over the course of the year. I want to move on to the Green Bay Packers. They played the Lions last night in Thursday night football and got absolutely embarrassed at Lambeau Field. <laughs> they got embarrassed. They, it, was, it was hilarious. If you look at the time of possession, Green Bay only had the ball for like a third of the game. Detroit had the ball for like twice as long as Green Bay did. The time of possession was like, uh, it was like 38 minutes to 22 or something like that. It was just something absolutely it – it was like absolutely wild. And the Lions led 27-3 to three at halftime. That game was over before it started for Green Bay. And that just kind of goes to show you that Green Bay can't really do much on offense when they don't have Aaron Rodgers and they don't have any other weapons and they're not playing the Bears. <laughs> the Bears, man. Yeah, sorry. The Bears, sorry, Chicago, you guys are a really easy target right now. (laughs) Yeah. Jordan Love was sacked five times. So Green Bay's pass defense, their pass rush defense was not there. You don't allow your quarterback to get sacked five times and expect to win. That just won't happen. And their total yards in the game? Hit me. 230. You can't do that. Nope. You won't win that way. You won't win. There's no way that you can win a football game in the NFL with only 230 total yards and get this 27 rush yards. Ring season ain't happening. 
That's yeah, that's it. Green Bay, you're you're eliminated from the playoff. That's you, just from that. You're at four weeks. You're gone. You're done. <laughs> that's you, you're not getting in. Better start reloading for next year. Probably time to start thinking about what trades and signs you want to make in free agency and all that. Because yeah, they now they did keep the Detroit pass game in hand. They only allowed Jared Goff to uh, get 190 pass yards, but they didn't. The Detroit didn't really try to use the pass game to win that. They used the run game. Demo had a triple crown. David Montgomery had three tutties, which is more points than Green Bay scored. <laughs> David Montgomery is him beat Green Bay. <laughs> David Montgomery Green, beat Green, Green Bay. Bay. Green Bay versus David Montgomery. David Montgomery won. Green Bay's rush defense in total allowed 211 rush yards. You're not going to win games when you're allowing almost as many rush yards as you get total yards. That's, that's a really bad look for Green Bay. And they did this in front of their home crowd in a primetime game on Thursday night football. That's, I mean, that is embarrassing PR for Green Bay to have to deal with. That's going to be seen now. That's, that's one of those games, because it's a primetime game, that's going to be noticed for weeks to come. Now, it's not – that doesn't hold quite as significant of an impact as, you know, in college ball when you have a selection committee that's actually weighing your games because the NFL is dependent on standings and not rankings. But everybody likes to draw power rankings, and that is not going to look favorable on Green Bay. I do want to move to the NBA just for a second because of the Milwaukee Bucks acquiring Damian Lillard. Um, their offense with Lillard and Giannis is going to be high-flying. This is going to be nuts. They're, they're going to be establishing some serious pick-and-roll abilities to their offense. While they did, they, they did lose some defensive impact at the point guard spot, Damian Lillard is fantastic on offense. He can still play defense. But losing Drew Holiday is going to negatively affect their defense. He was a lockdown defender. They always put him on, you know, their number one offensive player. But one of the other things that's worth looking at for the future of the Bucks with this trade, the Bucks control zero first-round draft picks now. None at all. You're only allowed to trade them out so far. But you only have so long of a window that you're allowed to trade your draft picks, and that's that's seven years. Seven years. What what does the aftermath look like when you trade away all of your first round picks for seven years? Like, what do you expect the Bucks to do here, Blake? Like, is this is this supposed to be a trade deadline type of deal where you're acquiring guys through trades and then losing them immediately because that's kind of the way trades work when you're gaining players through trades? Is this going to be uh, hoping your later draft picks, you're finding a diamond in the rough and just praying? Is this, are you trying to find guys in free agency and going high cap? Like, what, what does this look like for the Bucks right now? Do you think they're cooking something in the background? I have no idea what they're cooking, but they're, if, if they can't get an extension signed with Giannis, because Giannis doesn't have that much left on his contract. I, I, I believe this is his last year on his contract. So if they can't get an extension with Giannis, they got a problem because they acquired Lillard through a trade. So they don't have a fresh contract on Lillard. That's not they don't have him for the long term either. They're they're going to have to work out extensions. They're going to have to work stuff out through free agency because they're not going to be getting star power through the draft unless they just get lucky. And the other thing that's worth noting with this, Damian Lillard at the Trailblazers Hasn't played with any All-Stars since 2015. This will, be the, this, this will be the first time since 2015 that Damian Lillard has played with other All-Stars on his team outside of the All-Star game itself, which is absolutely wild. He might be a little rusty. Well, he's been carrying an entire team on his back for eight years. <laughs> And uh, now he's not necessarily going to have to do that. You know, him and it's going to be the Damon Giannis show up in Milwaukee. Should be entertaining to watch. We'll see how that affects their offense. I, I think it's going to drastically improve their offense as long as the teamwork of it goes well. Because the talent's there. 
the talent's there to give Milwaukee a high-flying offense. I want to move on to Major League Baseball. There's a lot of new developments in Major League Baseball over the last couple weeks. The Twins, they clinched the AL Central. They're 85-74. and 74. They are the number three seed in the AL, and they will, they'll be playing in October. But Twins playing in October, you know what that means we have to talk about. The Twins playoff curse. Mm-mm. You know when the last time the Twins won a playoff game? The, la- the last time the Twins won a playoff game was in 2004 against the New York Yankees. They lost the series, and it's been a long time. That was Ron Gardenhire's third year's manager. <laughs> it's been that long. And it's 18 losses in a row currently. And if that streak goes, and after this year it'll be 20. No streak in any major professional sport is like this. They have the longest postseason losing streak in, by any team in any major professional sport, and it's not even remotely close. The only sports where you're even going to have the possibility of this are ones where you have major series because that's how you're going to stack those up year after year after year. You, you'd be looking at comparing Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL. Those are the only three leagues where that's really even possible. And somehow the Twins actually managed to lose 18 playoff games in a row. It's been even longer than that since they've won a playoff series. You know the movie Moneyball, Blake? Hmm. The movie Moneyball. No. With the, with the Oakland A's, it's got Brad Pitt in it. I have it's, not seen that. I need to see that. You definitely need to watch Moneyball. Yes, sir. Great sports movie. But that's, the, the, that's them basically using statistics to determine to, to create a great team that's not actually that great, but it performs really, really well, right? Mm-hmm. The last time the Twins won a series in the playoffs was against the Moneyball A's in 2002. It's been over 20 years since the Twins won a playoff series. Now, I'm optimistic because in the time since the Twins have last been to the playoffs, they keep getting eliminated by, typically, the New York Yankees. There have also been, the New York Yankees are not exclusive here, but that's the team we all think of when we think of a team eliminating the Twins from the playoffs. Mm -hmm. The New York Yankees are not in the playoffs this year. I'm optimistic. I'm saying I'm 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 optimistic too now. I'm optimistic. And when you have a streak like this, you know what this means? It means you're due. It means you're due. The Twins are going to win a series this year. The Twins are going to play likely either the Astros or the Blue Jays because the Tampa Bay Rays are going to get the first wild card slot. The Rangers are in shape to win the AL West division and take the number two slot. Whoever wins that division is going to take the number two seed. Whoever loses that division is going to be in contention with uh, the Blue Jays for that five seed and play the Rays. And then whoever has the lower seed will be playing the Twins. So that's when I'm looking at that. Which, if you're looking at playing the Astros or the Blue Jays, Blake, which, which team, if you're the Twins, would you rather pl- be playing right now? I know who you'd rather play. And uh, who would you suspect that to be? Astros. No. No, I would much rather be playing the Blue Jays. Historically, the Twins actually have fared well against the Blue Jays in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Granted, that history goes back a really long way to 1991. And that was the last time the Twins played the Blue Jays in the postseason. And you know what happened that year? What? The Twins won the series. Heck yeah. Not just the series against the Blue Jays. <laughs> they won the World Series World that series. year. So, yeah. I, I want the Twins to play the Blue Jays just partly out of superstition, but also because I think that the Astros are a better team. And I would rather not have to worry about that until later. And I think that the Astros can be more consistently good. I think that the Blue Jays are a bit streakier. I don't like the idea of having to deal with Kevin Gaussman on the mound, but we also have Pablo Lopez, who will be ready uh, for the wild card series. Same with Sonny Gray. We've got the pitching depth. We got the rotation depth to go deep in the playoffs, which is something that you need in order to go deep. You can have a, a relatively successful season with a pretty good offense and a mid pitching rotation. You want to have success in the playoffs, you got to have a consistently deep pitching rotation. 
because otherwise you're going to get cooked when you get to your third, fourth, fifth pitchers. And that hasn't been the case with the Twins. Kenta Maeda, since Kenta Maeda started the season like 0-5 for the Twins pitching, and since then he's actually been pretty good. He's got a winning record since that initial losing streak that he had. So, and you look at that, and then the rest of it, the last pitcher, the last couple pitchers on the rotate, the, or Joe Ryan's been fairly decent as well. He's 11 and 10 on the year. And then you're just looking at that last spot. Who do you throw in that last starting spot in the rotation? Right now, that's Bailey Ober. He's been doing all right. I don't have a whole lot to say beyond that. Trevor Molly was the guy that they started at the beginning of the year, and obviously he fell out of the rotation. Injuries were a problem there as well. But Bailey Ober has been holding his own, and they've been winning games with Bailey Ober on the mound. They've lost some with Bailey Ober on the mound as well, but the rotation as a whole is deep enough to win games and to win series. And I think that that gives a chance to make a deep run here in the playoffs, even though they might be one of the more underwhelming teams when you look at it comparatively. Um, I want to move on from the Twins to the Brewers. The Brewers, very recently... I believe it was two days ago, clinched the NL Central. They are guaranteed the number three seed on the NL side of the playoffs. And the question for them also is, who will they be playing? The wild card race has not shaken itself out yet. Now, with the NL wild card race, it's a little bit different. Instead of where are the team's going to be ordered in the playoff, it's who's going to make it. Because... The Phillies are in. That's guaranteed. They, they clinched a playoff spot. They're going to be a wild card team. And they're probably going to be the top wild card. They'll be the top wild card team. They will mathematically be the top wild card team. If you look at the odds, the, the odds predictions for the Arizona Diamondbacks, they are 97 plus change percent chance to get into the playoffs. They're your number five seed. So the question from there is who's your sixth seed? It's going to be the Cubs of the Marlins, but is there, is, is there anything that stands out to you as far as their last couple of series between the Cubs and – or their, their last series? The, the Cubs have the Brewers for their last series, mm-hmm. and I don't remember offhand who the Marlins have, but is, is there any way that you can see either one of these teams, you know, definitively making a case that they do belong there before the season ends and one of them takes that spot? Definitely seeing with the Cubs, like with their momentum, they are drastically losing that momentum. Like they have definitely been been looking like they've been in jeopardy for a little bit. Like especially from like this past series against the Braves. Hard to have a good series against the Braves though. Oh yeah. Speaking of that last series against the Braves, Seiya Suzuki. Bruh. Catch fly balls. Bruh. That was terrible. One, one Most of our... high school players would have made that catch. Oh yeah. That, that's all I have to say about that. I was in the same room with one of our friends who is a diehard Cubs fan. Diehard Cubs fan. His whole family is diehard Cubs fans. I was in the same room with them whenever that fly ball went on the ground. And I imagine things were, were – were, were, was anything thrown, I guess, is the question. Anything thrown? Anything broken? Surprisingly, no, because, because probably because I was in there. He probably would have otherwise. And then – Getting back to the Brewers for one last thing. I was talking about the Twins rotation. Um, the Brewers, they've got, they've got a decent rotation, but the question is, is it going to be deep enough? Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, they're, they're, they're going to be solid. They're, they're, they should be able to take the wild card series with those two. But your back of the rotation, are they going to be able to survive the NLDS with the back of their rotation? That's the question. Are they going to fall behind and then fizzle out? So I think that's a legitimate concern for the Brewers right now. That could potentially be a concern for the Twins as well, as with any other team that has to play in the wild card. But that is something that worries me about the Brewers actually going deep, is I can't see them making it out of the NLDS just because of the back of their rotation is not particularly strong. Back to the Cubs. They are clinging to that final wild card spot. They are in contention with the Marlins for it. Technically, somehow, the Cincinnati Reds and are, are still in it. And I don't understand the math behind it, 
I don't know what kind of advanced calculus you have to do with their records, but somehow the San Diego Padres are not actually mathematically eliminated. I, I, I don't know how that works. I don't know how they actually get in, but somehow they are not actually mathematically eliminated. I don't get it. There's probably some weird tiebreaker rules thrown in there. If you look at ESPN's playoff odds predictor, it is less than 0.1% chance that they get in. I, I don't understand it, but for all intents and purposes, it's the Cubs and the Marlins. The D-backs are in. The Phillies are in. It's that sixth spot is between the Cubs and the Marlins. And right now, Miami holds the series tiebreaker, which means that if their records end up the same on the year, which is a legitimate possibility, that spot would go to the Marlins. So in order for the Cubs to take that spot, because the Cubs only have two games left, they have two games against the Brewers, they need to win out, and they need to have Miami lose twice. That way they are a game ahead of Miami, or I guess it would be half game, game, I don't know. Measuring half games is weird. Anyway, uh, yeah, it would be they'd be a game ahead of Miami, and then the tiebreaker would not come into effect. So Chicago, if you want to get in, you've you got to win out. That's your only chance and hope. Miami controls their own destiny. They went out, they're in. And then ending your regular season series at Atlanta and Milwaukee is less than optimal. You, you're ending your season at two division champions. That's, that's tough. That's, I mean, you, you don't know that that's going to be the case at the start of the year when you're scheduling or when the schedules come out, I guess, because the MLB is doing your scheduling and not the teams. It's not like a college ball where your scheduling is done at the conference level for conference play and then on your own for, for non-con. That's all done administratively by the MLB. But, yeah, you, you, you don't really have any way of planning on the Brewers being that great at the end of the year. The Brewers are a 90-win team. Now, we all thought that that would be the Cardinals at the start of the year, and the Cardinals are nowhere to be found right now. <laughs> and Justin Steele, who we th- looks like he could have potentially been a Cy Young candidate, is projected to play in their season closer. He will not be ready for the wild card. That means if they actually do make it to the wild card, Justin Steele will not be playing. So, and we know, and, and the Cubs do not have pitching depth. So do you think if the Cubs actually manage to make the wild card, do you think they have any chance at all? Slim to none. Slim to none. That, that's about what I'd say. Because it'd be, it'd be Marcus Stroman pitching your first game of your uh, wild card series. And then after that, it's you're probably looking at if Marcus Stroman gets the win, which is possible, but you never know. I, I would lean toward Marcus Stroman getting a win for the Cubs. Hmm. But after that, the rest of their rotation, I don't know if I'd be particularly confident in them getting that those wins against the Brewers. But that is all for today's show. Follow us on Twitter or X or whatever the heck you want to call it now. Find Blake at BlakeAttack1846. You can find me at the Menson Minute. This is Blake Peterson, I'm Matt Menson, and this has been the Cornfield Sports Pod. See you next time.